Spine, how books are put together. I'm your host, Holly Dunn, and today I'm talking with Mirafora Mina, who is one half of Mina Lima. And if you're not familiar with Mina Lima, you probably are familiar with their work because they did all the graphic design for a little thing called Harry Potter. So all the Harry Potter films and the Fantastic Beasts films, the graphic design, the uh, the Daily Prophet, the textbooks in, in those films, they are all designed by Mina Lima. Uh, so we were really excited to get Mirafora on the podcast because I'm a huge Harry Potter nerd and it's quite a different way of looking at book design because it's within a fictional world. We don't just talk about Harry Potter though, we also discuss Mina Lima's more recent endeavour which is a series of interactive classics which have things like pop-ups and flaps and all sorts of things that you can actually physically interact with within the books. Uh, So we chat about that at the beginning. Without further ado, here is Mira. Uh, so I thought we'd start with looking at the interactive classics you did with um, HarperCollins. And mm-hmm. am I right in thinking there are five of them now? There are. In fact, we've just finished. We, they literally just got the proofs back for the sixth one. Um, so that will be out in October. And we've just started We're probably a few chapters into the seventh one. So, yeah, Wonderful. five published with two in, in one in Inception and one uh, one about to come out. Yeah. Yeah, so it's Beauty and the Beast, The Secret Garden, Jungle Book, Peter Pan, and The Little Mermaid so far. Are you allowed to say what the next one is? I am allowed to say what the next one is. It's um, a bit of a favourite of ours, and probably quite a few people's Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass together. Oh, and I bet that really gives you a lot of opportunity to do really yeah. creative things I think we went a little bit psychedelic on this one Fantastic. <laughs> but you know I think our style anyway is is to to try and sort of break with convention where possible so obviously in that world um you have quite a lot of scope to do that um since it's mostly dreamlike and and unreal yeah mm. um so th- they're incredible feats of paper design as well as being your amazing graphic design. Um, so I was wondering what your process looks like in, in doing these and if you could sort of walk us through from you know, looking through the manuscript and deciding which illustrations to do through to actually making the, the interactive mm-hmm. elements. Well, it's funny because um, I used to think that we came to book, we, neither, neither Eduardo nor myself are trained as book designers or specifically illustrators. So I always used to think that we came to book design in a rather kind of back to front way, having designed and made a lot of prop books for films, for the Harry Potter films primarily. And then I kind of realized recently that actually that it wasn't really back to front. It was actually a really good kind of springboard because everything that you do for designing books for film is about trying to capture that particular moment. And you might have to you know, 20 seconds of screen time, if you're lucky to to explain that and communicate that to an audience. So you're trying to get the essence of what's happening in the story at that moment and capture it in this piece, which might be a book design, a book cover, it might be the inside pages of a book. And so I think we kind of brought that experience back into our own project, which are these illustrated classics. So we're always trying to think, well, what's what's the personality primarily of the story? And what's our first book we did was the Peter Pan book and 
without knowing we were going to turn it into turn this project into into multiple um, publications with Peter Pan we kind of set ourselves a task well what would a book from Wendy's bedroom look like not a book about Peter Pan but a, a book from Peter Pan so that kind of gave us a good path to to go down in terms of choice of of the the interactives and and even the paper the paper type and the paper color you if you look you'll see it's not completely it, every page has got a sort of aging printed printed on it and obviously the style of the covers suggestive of a piece that might have come from that world rather than just being about it so that was the kind of that's the kind of ethos that goes behind the the design of these books in terms of uh planning it it again i think our experience from the from the work in film was being quite useful because you have to be quite military and kind of strategic about what's needed when, how and why, especially the why bit. So we we always create a book map when we first get the manuscript and try and examine the bits that will be interesting to illustrate and the bits that will be interesting to turn into these interactives, which again are sort of for us like mini props. Um, so we were, when we did the first book, we were thinking well if we had to do what we do in film but but condense it into this tiny book how would we as designers uh, interpret that that challenge so those interactives are never meant to be treading on the toes of the giants of pop-up and paper engineering but they're more like little props that we would have done in bigger version for a film so we we do them book map and figure out what should go where and that's quite a scientific process I suppose Mm. Um, and of course book design is very three-dimensional every time you move something it it affects a million other things so whereas when we're making props for films that doesn't come into play because we can just do it exactly how we want so this has been a new a new experience for us but we everything will be thought through from the from the end papers to the the folio the numbers details at the bottom and how these interactives can um, help support what's going on in the story as if they might be from the characters rather than from us. Wow, I love that approach that you're really immersive. And it's it's clear that that's what you do with the Harry Potter books. And we'll come to those in a bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so then when it comes to those actual interactive prop bits, are you getting sort of scissors out and, um, you know, cutting knives and, and experimenting yes. with different ways of doing them? Yeah, I think I mean obviously there's quite a lot of limitations to what you can put in a in a spread in a in a in an open page, but yeah, very much so. We always make maquettes. Um, everything will be tested in in white paper first, and we work um, really closely with Harper Collins, the publisher, and the and the plant as well, who's who's manufacturing the book to see if test things, see if they work. And uh, of course, you can't have too many of the things because it will bulk out the book too much. HarperCollins have been amazing at kind of welcoming and supporting our rather fanciful ideas, um, whether it's in the interactives or in the finishes that we'd like to achieve with foiling and stamping and debossing. So I think we're all really delighted that for a fairly affordable piece, we could still be quite indulgent in our in our techniques of because I suppose they're making enough of them for that to work. And that, of course, is a joy for us too, to know that unlike on a film where it might be two seconds of screen time, these books can be in 
you know, in people's lives. Um, so it's it's a kind of um, a little bit of a evolution from our from what we learned to do in film. Oh, that's wonderful. And and I I take it all those elements have to be made by hand by the manufacturer as well. Well, they they're assembled by hand. Yeah. Um, because that's the only way to get things to you know to work and to, to mm. be put together but everything we will design everything so that it can be die cut yeah so we have to um think about the manufacturing right from the start just as we do when we're we're making film props it's it's exactly the same way it's just much more commercial which um was a bit of a a challenge at first because we're so used to having complete control over everything we make if we're working making books for a film we might make six yeah <laughs> in total <laughs> and we can work directly with a bookbinder and we can be really really when you said get the scissors out we can be doing that and mm. on every single book ourselves yeah. so do you have a particular audience in mind when you're making these because most of them are you know, they're, they're books for children often younger children you know that they're those fairy tales but at the same time I think they really have that nostalgic appeal to adults yeah, we did. We definitely didn't set out to have a particular audience because I think we we tend to design for what we want, which is sounds really selfish. But I think it's a it's a bit like giving a present. You kind of want something that you 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 want to give something that you really enjoy yourself and you like yourself. We definitely set out with these these projects to achieve something that felt that we'd love to have ourselves. And we've noticed that it does span from sort of young adults or maybe even people buying them for their children but they definitely look after them they're like mm, my children are not going to have their hands on this for a while but yeah but that's also not necessary because if they enjoy it then let, you know it should be shared but but yes I think a lot of people are enjoying buying these for their production values and I'm, I'd be really curious to know how many people have actually read them cover to cover <laughs> because I think a part of the experience is that is the tactile and visual experience as much as the the reading mm. and it's yeah. actually really reassuring to know that there's still that there's a market for that because obviously when the ebook sort of started to appear everyone started to panic a little bit about what would happen with more interesting bindings and publishing but of course with every challenge like that in industry comes the sort of reaction and I think actually we've seen a really good take up of of this kind of of, of publishing which for us is a joy um, to know that there is a, a, a really good audience for it. Yes, it is kind of like the anti-e-book. Yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, and I love what you said about making stuff that you want to see uh, because I think that brings a real sense of joy and, and wonder to it. The, the same kind of feeling actually that I get from reading the Harry Potter books or watching the Harry Potter films, just just that, that real childish delight and I, I remember when The Secret Garden came out, I went into the bookshop and sort of squealed at how gorgeous it was and being able to <laughs> take the, the plastic off and, and look at all these incredible, you know, detailed little interactive things that... And that's the annoying bit so of the plastic, clever. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like, why do we have to have plastic on this? The whole point is that mm. it's like straight, full immersion straight away. But of course, there's some practicalities to, yes. <laughs> to life and selling books but um yeah well I'm really glad and, and that you that you felt like that because that is totally our intent mm -hmm. and um it, it so many projects that we that we work on kind of evolve they seem to take on their own um their own life like I said we didn't 
we didn't think that this would happen, that there would be seven and that they would become a family and they would have such a, a you know, they'd have their own personality, I suppose. Apparently, uh, Eduardo is very keen to, to do 12, to have 12 of these little yeah. babies. <laughs> but um, we'll see. There's still many stories to be told. So I don't see why not. I, I will have to make room on my shelves. Well, that's the idea. Yeah, we might yeah. even sell We might, might even design a shelf as well for them to be put on. Yes. <laughs> um, so moving on then from ties in quite nicely with what you were saying about imagining how a book from the world that you that the book is is set in Mm. how yeah you're putting yourself into that and obviously that's what you have to do if you're working on a film and i mean harry potter there are so many different influences in the whole aesthetic of those films and so i was wondering how how that differs from you're just working on a book in the real world i know that you you sort of specialize in the prop side of things uh, but the, the way that you think about that yeah that's a good question um, <laughs> yes when when we making choices about how to design um a prop for for a film it's totally about understanding whose object it belongs to what their personality is or what what the places it's it's helping to describe this prop will be imbued with with all sorts of powers <laughs> I'd like to say to help drive the story and hopefully as an audience you won't even notice that because you'll just accept if it's been done properly you'll you'll accept that it's that it's real you know even something from the wizarding world and if you read somebody's handwriting for example Snape's handwriting that's scrawled all over the book that he that he had that was his that belonged to him we have to think well how would he do that what sort of personality is he and how can I help describe that to the audience so that they believe this is absolutely his book so having great writing like J.K. Rowling's means we have a, a good framework on which to to make those decisions because a lot of the information a lot of the suggested information is there she's very good at not actually giving everything away so she won't ever describe what something looks like in its entirety which gives us a huge scope to interpret and be creative I think even something like the Marauder's Map was described as a you know the the kids get a a square piece of parchment out and this thing happens (laughs) so um and then of course the magic is when she describes what it does and how it makes people feel or what drives them to do something. So that's where she has the power to describe the scene. And then it's up to us to try and fill in the, the visuals to, to make it all come to life. But from a practical point of view, we have the resources and the time and the imagination to really kind of indulge and give the best we can to the audience so that we might be making books out of metal etched brass or with marbled ed- page edges it might have really elaborate tooling that we work with a bookbinder and of course the most important thing is how we age something so it might come back from the bookbinder beautifully beautifully bound and then we set about attacking it with yeah. um, attacking it very gently with with sandpapers and coffee and sometimes hammers and whatever but it that that's the bit where you can really shape its history you're trying to fast track its history in in that in in how you choose to age it so 
you have complete control over that on a film. As I said, you might be making half a dozen of these for for the requirements of the of the filming. Now, when it came to doing commercial design, we rather naively were like, yeah, we can we can do books. And then, of course, we <laughs> we didn't realise that the actual uh, logistics and the practicalities that are required to work, perhaps with a printer that's in China, or that there are budgetary requirements that mean that you can't have what you want in terms of finishes and foiling. And But on the whole, we try and push as far as we can go to achieve our, to keep our voice, if you like, in, in the design. And it's been a real sort of a, a huge learning curve because we didn't really become, in inverted commas, book designers until we'd finished working on the Harry Potter films and um, just, as I said, naively kind of fell into this side of, um, book design through that experience but we've we've learned a lot and I think there's so much scope and it it's it's so related to what we've done in the past that it's it's always enjoyable to be presented with those challenges even if they're commercial ones like you cannot have more than 400 pages in this book <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or everything has to be a multiple of eight and every and same thing we we had we uh, you've probably seen we we designed the um, screenplay books for um, yes. the first and second Fantastic Beast film, but again that brings with it a whole set of new challenges because it's a screenplay, so the reader is going to have a very different relationship with with the book. We don't want to overload it with with design, but it still needs to have the essence of what people have seen in that film or, or the associations they make with the wizarding world so everything 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 goes back to story and um if you have a good one then it will just give you a massive leg up to try and to, to be able to communicate your ideas visually yeah so you said how you're thinking about the the characters and what the the objects need to say about them but what about where the actual items come from within the wizarding world because i'm a a huge harry potter nerd and this is Mm. something i've probably thought about a little too much but (laughs) you know are are there graphic designers are there book designers within the wizarding world you know who makes these things because they're (laughs) also very handcrafted that they it doesn't seem logical that they would be made by magic yet i don't (laughs) know know if anything at hogwarts actually sets them up for for doing that kind of career. That's funny you should say that because we were always secretly, um, don't tell anyone this, wondering why there wasn't a design or an art class at Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, that's not fair. <laughs> you know, so now you've nailed it by saying that. Um, <laughs> we equally in production, many of us, uh, when we were having those conversations, you could, I, I wish someone had recorded some of the conversations that took place in the art department about designing for the Wizarding World. Sometimes when people just were like, but how did that happen? You know, how did that light go on? Or how did that get built? Or how did that staircase move? And quite often the answer was like, well, it's magic. It's a really good question. And I, I think what we what we wanted to try and capture in the design was a sense of reality even though we're in this extraordinary world, which is completely fictional, in order to reflect what J.K. Rowling had done in the writing, she anchored everything in a reality. Nothing was, well, look at Harry's letter. That's the, the very first thing that we know of from this wizarding world. And it happens to be incredibly material, real, tangible stuff that every human being is going to 
desire is to get a letter. I'm sure it was not by coincidence that that all of these references, the seven school years, the institutionalised environment that they're in, all relate to realities that we're all familiar with. And that just draws the, the reader in so quickly because we can all identify with these elements of the story, um, whether it's a place or a person or a, or an experience. And so we try to do the same with the design. And if there is a mention of a newspaper, we need to make it feel like a newspaper, even if once you start to read what the news is in, in it and see the layout of the typography and the, you then realise that you're in this alternate universe. But everything must start with reality. And I think that's probably what we thought that a wizarding graphic designer would do um, because their experience of the world is still parallel to to a muggle world. And I think at one point we even had, we we got to the point, I mean, to answer your question, where we sort of thought, well, there would be a printing works for the Daily Prophet. What would it be like? Who's Mm. working in there? What tools are being used? What paper, what, you know, even Gildory Lockhart, how are we going to design some books for someone who's complete fake? Yeah. Well, let's use, let's go right to the heart of it and use, he's he's allegedly do, done all this traveling and exploring. Um, let's give him fake materials. So the choices that we made for the book covers are fake lizard skins and snake skins and referencing some of that, that kind of travel journal imagery. And so let's push it right into the to the heart of what he is. So it's almost like he doesn't even really like someone having a really bad fake tan. <laughs> you know, they just yeah. they like really big up and then <laughs> really have a really bad hairdo. So I think sometimes the character will help you, help give you the clues to answer those things. So I'd like to have visited his, you know, his designer and his publisher, and and of course the Weasley twins. They're you know yes. they were des- they designed all their um all their packaging for their shop because they were just winging it aged whatever it was 15 16 yeah true entrepreneurs <laughs> um, yeah so again let's we had to remove our design sensibilities and become and eduardo and i were like okay how we are two teenage boys um <laughs> designing all this crazy rubbish packaging that they just need to sell as quickly as possible so once you know what the motivation is then that will help you come up with the answers so yes your your question means there were lots of different types of designers in this world just as in the wizarding world and we had to be them all <laughs> and and i'm thinking about the the dark arts defense basics for beginners cover oh, yeah. which yeah, has really got good. that really um mid-century modern look to it yeah. and it it's so perfect for umbridge <laughs> well again you know that her her character's so perfectly described and and those those characters in Harry Potter all the sort of slightly dark sinister ones I think are our favorites because they give you so m- much information and she was so patronizing and so sugary coated uh, that that felt right to give something to the kids that would really undermine their intelligence and throw them back into being children basically but still with a twist of coming from a wizarding world so that was fun to design yeah (laughs) yeah and I suppose you have to have a a really strong understanding of art history and the history of design in order to create these things I wish I could say that I had a a fantastic knowledge of it all it's really you know obviously we have a huge interest and that's the Mm. beginning of knowledge but quite often we're having to really 
the first thing we do when we work on a film production is to immerse ourselves in a sort of in a research process where we will whether it's the film set in a particular period like Fantastic Beast being in the 20s uh, or a place um, or in Harry Potter where it's set in the present day but references different historical styles to help the story points but we do have to skim the surface quite a lot because there's so much to cover in one project which you're working on for say a year, maybe maximum a year so you don't you know we're all we're all fakes in <laughs> cinema, in the nicest possible way in the sense that we have to fake everything and so that means trying to capture the spirit of a time a place or a situation but sometimes we may not have more than a month to do that research for that particular scene or that particular time but it's we always have a researcher in the art department so they will be doing a lot of res- visual research for the whole of the architectural team in fact m- mostly for them and then we're also doing our own research whether it's going to archives libraries we buy an awful lot of books on really weird stuff that you would never think that anyone would have made but we're delighted that they have and all those things will come together to help shape the the style of a, of a piece of a of a pr- film production i mean obviously the last two films set in 1926 and 27 in new york and paris gave us an extraordinary opportunity to really dig deep and just immerse ourselves in that period and i can't think of a you know a, a better sort of chemistry than being asked to work in the wizarding world in the 20s oh absolutely <laughs> um, um, because even when you're having to do the muggle stuff it, it's just everything's hand hand designed hand painted typography is extraordinary and it was a whole new era of design so mm. I wish I could say we were experts but we um we just try our best to capture the moment <laughs> well I actually wanted to ask you about the the typography side of things because obviously you're working with with book covers and with newspapers and all these different things which are very type heavy um, mm. so what, where do you look to for inspiration? You said you've got a, a collection of very eclectic books, um, but are there any other sources you look to or any particular titles you look to? Because a lot of our work is kind of anchored in historical uh, referencing, even if we're in the present day, we tend to kind of reach to that style because it seems to be so so interesting to, to, to work with. We've We've accumulated quite a lot of sign writing manuals and type typography manuals from even going back to say turn of the last century and those are really useful they don't necessarily help you if you want to be setting out a lot of type in terms of copy but in the way that we work where we might be having to create one headline or one title or a masthead design that can be a fantastic resource for because we then work with the type as as form rather than um, as digital type, so we can really kind of shape the style of uh, of, a, of a title or a, or a masthead for a newspaper, and it will completely transform the the personality. In fact, we we have a sort of joke that we have this kind of casting session where you know the the all the all the type all the fonts kind of line up and and um, do their audition. Yeah. <laughs> and, some of them just don't cut it, you know. They, um, and you, you so know when you when it's not right. And then a vet, sometimes it will take a whole day to find the right one. But um, when you do, it's kind of yeah, it, it it's it's goosebumps. It's great. Mm. I think any 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 designer will 
that will resonate with them. But um, yeah, a lot of where we can, we we find a lot of um, historical typefaces. And of course, now a lot of font um, foundries are also recreating some of those typefaces. So yes, when we do need to use them digitally, there are some and we've been working a lot um, with a, uh, am I allowed to mention a, a company? Uh, I <laughs> um, think so, yeah. There's a, a fantastic designer in the States called Oliver who has a, a, found, a, a digital um, font uh, company called Walden Fonts. And he's he's just as passionate as we are about period fonts and historical fonts and, and digitizes them. And we've used, we've worked with him a lot to um, I even commissioned him to, to make a font for the last film. I think in another life and when we have a bit more time, that's just pretty much what we'll do too, is just make our own fonts. Yeah. It's too many things I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> so on a technical side of things, are you take are you scanning in those those resources and then sort of moving them around as individual objects? Is that what you mean? On on exactly. a screen? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's obviously a bit restrictive if you really need to put a lot of copy together. But for, for even just for a headline or, you know, chapter openers or drop yep. caps kind of thing they can be really useful tools and we've even done a little bit of ages ago when we started on harry potter films we worked there's a fantastic museum in london called the type museum and we had set up some letterpress printed it and scanned that so that we also have the right finish because of course that's just as important and by the way scanning these pieces also goes for all the the rules and the and the the details that come with fonts so that all the little asterisks the lines the pointy fingers all of those right those details will usually be in those manuals as well so if we're setting out a design and it has a border or, or even straight lines on it we very rarely rely on the computer to generate those things we will we'll try and work as much as possible with scanned originals even if it's from an old I don't know an old flyer from a circus poster from the you know from the 1900s or yeah if we if we can take pieces from that and even just numbers and points that makes it just all those elements come together to to make the personality of the piece and does the same go for the illustrations they're mostly drawn i mean we'll we'll just draw from scratch and we might reference like the tales of the beetle the bard we might look at medieval uh, illustrations to get the style and the costume and the (laughs) the shape of the beard but again the finish of how broken down it will be is really vital in turn and some of that I actually put into the book binding so I worked with the book binder to achieve the some of the the broken down look in the actual process of the blocking the block work and the Mm. before attacking it with sandpaper oh wow I, I was wondering about the the process of actually working within a film so uh, who who are you answering to in, in terms of the props? I, I imagine there are lots of people who have to sign off different different elements. And uh, I mean, the, gosh, there's, there's so much within this question. But um, <laughs> how much you get given by, say, J.K. Rowling or the director? That's a, a good question because <laughs> it is a, a, a funny old business, the, the film business. So the graphics team, any graphics team on any film will be working within the art department. And the art department is responsible for the whole of the film set from the architecture to the choice of uh, how it's decorated, which is uh, the set decorating team. And then we're the sort of final layer in terms of the graphics. So we work really closely with the set decorator and the production designer who is responsible as a whole for the whole of of the look of, of everything I just described. Once we've 
if we're designing a significant piece that's that's what we would call a hero prop so that's part of the of the storytelling rather than background stuff we would make sure that those two people are happy with it and then we would have to show it to the director and sometimes the producer as well for sign off and if any of those people are not happy then it's back to the drawing board in terms of jk rowling she on the on the harry potter films she was much less involved than she has been on fantastic beasts simply because she kind of handed the books over to the filmmakers but quite often in the graphics world we do need I guess we're one of the departments that needs to sort of help tell the backstory as much as what's going on now. So, for example, the Black Family Tapestry, in the film script, it might just say that there's these few people related to each other that we know about. If we're designing the whole tree, we kind of need to know a little bit more about the genealogy of that family. Yeah, yeah. So there's only one person that can tell us that. So in situations like that, we will go to her and say, please can we have some more information about this? And she's great because she just literally, it comes back and she knows the whole thing. Or if she's really busy, we might give her options. So like for fan- in Fantastic Beasts, a lot of the wizard uh, street names, the newspaper, those kind of things will say, are you happy with these? Which of these three options do you prefer for the wizarding pub or the, or the French wizard newspaper? And she's very clear about as you can imagine, about what she wants and knows if, if, if it's not there in the script. Because the script is largely dialogue. It doesn't give a huge amount of stage direction, certainly not to the detail that, of what we're doing. So it's very much, we've, we're entrusted with that decision-making. And it's been great because the, the, right from the first film in 2000, we kind of set up this visual language. And I think that gave everyone a bit of a security that oh we'll let graphics get on with that even down to copywriting for the newspapers or products some of the book titles copywriting tends to fall on graphic designers laps which can be a bit challenging but yeah you are absolutely answerable to a team um, but at the same time no one is telling us what to do so we just have to come up with a, a concept a visual solution and it's at that point that it gets discussed yeah and i'm thinking like the the dark arts defense the basics of a beginner's one going back to that because i think in the books it's got a different title hasn't it it's uh defensive magical theory oh is it (laughs) yeah correct me if i'm wrong but no no i no you definitely will know better than me on that because a it was a long time ago and b we when we're working the first thing we do is work to the script and it's possible that in the script it said that and then sometimes we had got a bit tripped up because it might describe something in the script that's a little bit of a departure or a kind of consolidated idea from the books but yeah I I don't know how that uh, that's an interesting um uh, <laughs> well, it, it makes Wait. sense on a on a visual level because, especially with the illustration you've got for that one, it it just again really dumbs it down. Whereas a yes. title like Defense of Magical Theory sounds like it it could be a legitimate Defense Against the Dark Arts book as opposed to <laughs> yeah. one for children. And also, I think that I think we designed a a, a Defense Against the Dark Arts book for every nearly every film because it was a subject that was referenced, if not in all of them, certainly in quite a few of the films. So I suspect that it ended up being called that because all the other books were called Defence Against the Dark Arts, so it needed to then have this sort of appendage of for beginners. So it's possible that it was in the script 
uh, as to just to make it very clear that that's what was going on. Okay, well, we're, we're running out of time, but I did want to ask you about the process of a couple of books. And I thought a good one to look at would be the original Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them book that was used in the Harry Potter films and mm. the one that you've done. Well, there are several versions, aren't there, in the, the Fantastic Beasts? Or is it just there's the only one? one? Yeah, there's just the one uh, because obviously we were kind of retrofitting. Yeah. <laughs> so. So, so the oh, I'm, first... I'm thinking about the the covers that we muggles that have. <laughs> did, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, for in 2000 when I worked on the first film, it, the the kids, I it was my first film and it was the children's first year at Hogwarts. Mm. <laughs> so they had a set of of books, one of which was um, Fantastic Beasts, and naively I strode ahead and and we, we got on with whatever was needed to, to be designed for that without of course no inkling of what was to come and so what we're assuming um, and those things we did know was that in that first film that edition of Fantastic Beasts would have been however many 50, uh, how many years later uh, 20 70 years later or something mm. um so from its first edition so it was an edition down the line of even though it was the first time we saw it in the harry potter universe so when we went back to 1926 to newt launching his book we needed to still reference some of the aesthetics that had that we'd seen in in the one from 2000 yes <laughs> so we gave it a very very strong sort of art deco uh, narrative, a, a visual narrative, but still made sure that it was the black and gold to suggest that maybe it had evol evolved over the years in all its editions from the deco version that we saw, the first edition, through to the much more decorative one that we saw in the 2000s. So we kind of, we did the same with the potion books, um, that scene where ha where Harry and Ron are fighting over yes. the... Uh, the potion book we needed to tell the audience in like in in just a few seconds that they both wanted the new edition because that's what you do when you're at school you don't want the, yeah. the crappy one <laughs> so they again we would make sure that we designed something that looked like it had a kind of previous edition and then the current edition but still with suggestions of how the design might have evolved over time so that's what happened with the Fantastic Beast book. <laughs> that's going to be on screen for so little time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Sometimes not at all. I mean, the whole of the um, the the Beetle the Bard book when when Hermione inherits it, and there's that wonderful scene with the uh, animated silhouette. Yeah. We designed the interior of that book as well, so that ah. it could transition from the pages into the knowing that it was going to be this sort of pu silhouette puppet show. We designed something very specific. Well, you could probably see it actually if if um, if you have a look on the, on the website. But it it's very um, suggestive of the animated sequence that happens. But they cut that from the film. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, that's and why it's so wonderful that you've got these postcard sets and and the exhibition in London. Yeah, well, again, we just thought, well, it's almost like the graphics outtakes of um, yeah. of the films because we, we could see that back in sort of 2008 or 10 when we finished the films that there was this extraordinary interest and an appetite for the filmmaking process and the, the craft behind the films, which none of us realised was of any value to, to the audience just as much as 
the acting and the front-facing bit of it. And when we started to exhibit the work and got permission from Warner Brothers to to turn it into limited edition artworks, we started to get this response from the audience, which was that it was part of their childhood and that these pieces had kind of shaped and, and brought to life, if you like, what they had only to that point had on as a printed word. And we had no idea that that was so significant to the audience. And it's been it's been really great being able to share both the really iconic pieces, which who knew were going to be iconic, like the Marauder's Map and the, the Daily Prophet and the potion making books and stuff. Not just that, but also all the other stuff that was genuinely created for each scene, but just never really got onto the screen so that people can examine that the whole world that was created. And we have to do that on every film. I mean, probably 10% of the work we did for Fantastic Beasts, you can really see on the film. The thing is, we don't know which 10% will get seen. So we do have to do the 100. But being able to go back and look at the, the minutiae of those those things is, I mean, for me, is is amazing because I'm a Harry Potter nerd as well as a graphic design nerd. Um, but Great. I mean, <laughs> in, in some ways... <laughs> Yeah, in some ways, you'd think that, that that could kind of break down that fourth wall a bit and make it seem less real. But actually, I think it does the opposite. You know, you, you walk through your exhibition in, in London, which I've been to several times. Oh, and thank you. It, it's just you know, the, the character of the building itself and the way everything is displayed and it all just looks a bit rickety and old and the floor <laughs> creaks. And it's just it's got that real magical well, again, feel to it. it. It, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about the Peter Pan book. What would the book from Wendy's yeah. house be like rather than the one about her house? When we chose to put this exhibition and this shop together, um, we, we felt very strongly that we wanted to create an environment that described the narrative from which this work came because it didn't, it's not fine art. It's not singularly going to stand on its own. It is part of a universe that was created. And if we can go any way to, to try and put it in an environment that suggests that, then I think it makes for a different experience and hopefully a, a more interesting one for the audience because they do feel so emotionally attached to that world. And I just love going there and seeing the smiles on people's faces. Unfortunately, we can't be there every day. Um, we we have to. Be, we're busy making the next the next load of stuff. But it's um, it's been both an interesting experience in terms of how to put on an exhibition or a shop in a different way. But also, it's been interesting being able to bring some of our experience working in film design into designing this environment because it is a, as you know you've been there it's a four-story house a townhouse mm. in the middle of Soho in London and comes with it all those challenges about how to you know which curtains to put up which how to decorate the ceiling and the floor and the windows and frame the pieces and create this narrative this experience for for the visitor um, and I suppose that probably goes right back to I trained in theatre design and film design being able to step outside of uh, designing in two dimensions on a screen or on a, in a sketchbook and think about the whole space around you is a great exploration of, of everything we've we've done to date. It's like a giant book, that place. <laughs> yeah, and then being able to, to buy something to take away with you as well. And I mean, the, the stuff that you've just brought out, the, those gorgeous notebooks, which I pre-ordered as soon as I saw them, <laughs> which are, are just, they're... they're 
again, it's that same attention to detail in you know, the the choice of the the bookbinding ribbon and the the bookmark and the the end pages, all just again bring that that magical world into into the real world into people's lives because people use notebooks daily (laughs) (laughs) yeah no that's it it, again it was like what would we want to have on our desks and detail is is king and you you can never ever take that for granted it has for us as designers it's um it's absolutely drives everything um even in a in a notebook it mustn't Mm. be ignored (laughs) that's something that really inspires me and i try to bring to my own work so i'm I, I just love looking at your stuff. It it makes me <laughs> just geek out and it makes me really inspired. So thank you oh, for thank all you. that you do. And thank you so much for, for being here today. It's been just No, wonderful. it's been a pleasure. And I have my black cat sitting right next to me just to keep it purely wizarding. <laughs> I wish I could show you. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts please be sure to rate and review us too. This show is hosted by Holly Dunn and edited by Eric Wilder. Our theme song is Sweet Berry Wine by Blue Wednesday. And Spine is a production of Spine Magazine. For show notes, articles, audio and video about the enormous talent that goes into creating books, visit spinemagazine.co.